The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door, all at a fraction of the price of other razors. Visit harrys.com and use the promo code POLITICAL. By GoToMeeting with HD Faces, start hosting your own face-to-face meetings today by signing up for your free 30-day trial of GoToMeeting. Visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free button, and use the promo code GABFEST. And by the University of California, creating opportunity through knowledge. That's the power of public. Learn more at universityofcalifornia.edu. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for June 13th, 2014, the Eric Cantor Shore Wears Beautiful Shoes edition. I'm David Plotz, the editor of Slate. Today, the shocking defeat of House Majority Leader Eric Cantor and what it means for the future of Congress and democracy. Hint, nothing good. Then Hillary Clinton got paid $14 million to write her new book, Hard Choices. And I have to say, whatever publisher paid her that got so ripped off. We will discuss that book. (laughs) Then a California judge rules that tenure for public school teachers in that state is unconstitutional. Why is There's so much celebration about that ruling. Slate's chief political correspondent, John Dickerson, is in Iowa because why, John? Well, uh, on a hunch, I flew to Iowa to um, check in on the Senate race here, also to uh, go to the Republican convention, the state Republican convention, which is this Saturday. And then it turns out that also Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the chairwoman of the Democratic Party, is coming here Friday to um, explain how the Republican Party has become captive to the Tea Party or has been swallowed whole by the Tea Party, which is... Ooh, Eric Cantor can be her Exhibit A. Well, that's, I think that's exactly why she's coming. So this is a late-breaking piece of news. Um, so uh, really, I flew all the way out here for a press conference by the chairman of the Democratic National Committee, which I could normally get by just going across town. Well, you you enjoy the corn. Is the corn as high as an elephant's eye yet? Or not? I don't think so. I okay. think we're in the that's wrong... That's Oklahoma. Period. We're in the wrong... Um, they have corn in Iowa. They have... <laughs> Just a couple of years of corn in Iowa, just one or two. Uh, I'm just saying elephant's eyes from Oklahoma. That's Emily Bazelon, the elephant's eye, the gimlet-eyed elephant of this (laughs) gab fest. She is the Slate senior editor. You're in New Haven, correct, Emily? Yes. Uh, Hello. Hello, you just called me an elephant. How excited were we all this morning, Thursday morning, to see that the New York Times crossword puzzle, the answer was (laughs) Slate, the clue was home of the gist and political gab fest. That was so awesome. It was awesome. It was it was awesome. However, it caused me to spill my smoothie in the Atlanta airport. Um, so it was not an unalloyed victory for gab fest. Oh, do not complain. We've been memorialized forever. So before we get started with the main show, Slate Plus, as you know, it's a great new membership program. We have $5 a month or $50 a year loaded with goodies get a mug if you join annually. You get no pagination. But best of all, if you're a podcast fan, you get ad-free podcasts and you get GabFest extras, extra segments on our show and Hang Up and Listen and the Culture GabFest today because we're not going to talk about what's happening in Iraq on this show. But we brought in for the GabFest Plus segment, the Slate Plus segment, Tom Ricks, who's a fantastic analyst of what happens in Iraq. And he gave the whole breakdown of why What's going on is going on now, how it happened, 
and what the U.S. can do about it. It's a fantastic 15 minutes. You will enjoy it if you are a Slate Plus member. And if you want to just find out if you would enjoy it, you can become a Slate Plus member for free. You can try it free for two weeks. You can go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to do that. Or you can email me directly for the best deal. That's david.plots at slate.com. I will get you the best deal. Will you throw in the mud flaps? Yeah, sure. There will be mud flaps. And mud flaps, running board, and uh, what's the f- tail fin? Okay. W- whatever. I'm so tired, John. I don't even know what you just said, but I'm sure it was awesome. Eric Cantor, the second-ranked Republican in the House, the majority leader, the heir apparent to House Speaker John Boehner, lost his primary on Tuesday in one of the most shocking congressional defeats I can remember. The Virginian was defeated by a little-known, or perhaps better to say unknown, Tea Party-backed candidate, an economics professor at a small college in Virginia named David Bratt. And he had Bratt had invaded against Cantor's ties to Wall Street, his disconnection from the people of his district, and Cantor's support for immigration reform. It's essentially certain that whoever succeeds Cantor in the position of, of majority leader for the Republicans will be more conservative than he is, though he himself was pretty, pretty darn conservative. There's also some chance, John will tell us how much of a chance, that Boehner himself will be toppled by an internal revolt. So, John, why did Cantor lose? How much does it matter? You'll promise you'll get back to those two other questions. Yes. We promise. This is the most pressing one. Why did he lose? Well, it's a multifaceted answer. Um, one, he, he was out raising a lot of money for his party and other members of the Republican conference. So he was in Beverly Hills a lot and places like that where they can raise lots of money, but not spending uh, enough time defending his home turf. The other thing is that as one um, Republican strategist put it, the campaign was basically like political malpractice. I mean, so not only was he not defending his home turf and taking it as seriously as he should have, but he ran lots and he outspent his opponent 40 to 1, ran lots and lots of negative ads, which were so over the top and blunt and sort of unbelievable calling Brad a uh, liberal professor, which was just basically hacky attacks that it ended up elevating and popularizing Brad. So it raised his name ID for a guy who had very little money. And then on the question of immigration, not only is immigration a hot-button issue, and so one that grassroots Republican voters really care about, but on that hot-button issue, Cantor kind of tried to play it both ways and so was demonstrating the kind of lack of principle and fixity that drives grassroots Republican voters nuts. And his pollster said he was up by 30 points, a a nearly 45-point mistake. So there were a lot of reasons that for why this didn't work. So Emily, can we just add in that it was a district that had been redrawn to become more rural and it may be that the fact that Cantor was Jewish mattered to some of these voters? Maybe I w- except that in his he lost his home neighborhood. I mean, he lost <laughs> everywhere. You lose by 11 points. I mean, maybe that was a contributing factor in some small, but he's a seven-term congressman. He didn't suddenly get Jewish. And, and I know it was redrawn, but not to 11 points. I was, I was, I was thinking it would take you, I would think it would take you 15 minutes to get to the, the Jew card, Emily, but you got it right in there. Well, I wanted to, to remember to say. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I didn't mean that. Well, no, but I talked to a former member of Congress, Republican member of leadership, and they brought this up within five minutes. I mean, I I don't think it's the whole bundle, but that notion is certainly out there. I will say that the 
couple of times I've seen Cantor up close. I've never met him, but I've seen him in small settings. I was struck at how nice his shoes were, that he wore really, really nice, really well-shined, but kind of narrow loafers, like like Italian. They looked Italian. I don't know if they were Italian, but they looked like expensive, fancy, dandyish shoes. And I thought, this is not a man. This is not a man who is who is priding himself on his populism. This is a man who is enjoying enjoying spending some money on clothes and enjoying being around fancy people. So Will Salatan, our colleague, wrote an interesting piece saying what's striking about the primary voters in this district is that they are much whiter, much older, and much more conservative than even Republicans as a whole. Right. I mean, it does seem like the composition of the district mattered, that the people who wanted to throw Eric Cantor out in a kind of throw-out-the-bums way are people who are in that category of feeling dispossessed and frustrated with Washington. And it seemed like they were reflecting a strain of populism that— you know, obviously we associate with the Tea Party. And this was a reminder to me of how the business interests of the Republican Party and the popular interests can diverge. So, you know, Cantor's position on immigration is what the U.S. Chamber of Commerce wants him to be saying. In fact, he's probably to the left of where the chamber is. Yet that didn't matter because the people who see him as failing them and as sort of cheating and hedging and, you know, not answering questions directly on Fox. I read that somewhere today. Those people don't care about the chamber. They see the chamber also as an entrenched interest. So it it's, I think, you know, he couldn't straddle that line somehow all of a sudden. John, Democrats, at least some of them, seem to see this somehow as good news. You know, a mighty duke of the Republican Party has been killed. How can it be good news that someone who is able to or works to make deals, who works to make the political system functional, is no longer in Congress and he's been replaced by someone who will be a huge obstructionist? How can that possibly be good news for anybody? Exactly. So I think what they're thinking is, hey, this is a crack up. This allows us to paint the Republican Party as in the thrall of an extreme wing of the party. And one of the problems for Democrats coming out of the Republican primary season so far is that there had been no crack-ups, that the Civil War had been pretty muted, and except for in Mississippi. You know, Thad Cochran was losing, and looks like he's maybe on his way to lose, but it wasn't creating these flashpoint national moments, which would give a Democrat, Democrats a chance to say, this is a party where the extreme wing drives the bus. And so now, out of this, they get to say, this party is so against even the most reasonable immigration reform, because Kendra wasn't to the left of the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, I think he was kind of where the chamber is, where where kind of mainstream Republicans are, which is some sort of path for undocumented workers to some kind of... What does that phrase, mainstream Republican, mean? That doesn't mean anything anymore. A majority of Republicans do not associate themselves as Tea Party supporters. So I would say, when I say mainstream Republicans, I'm talking about people who are still pro-individual liberty, low taxes, free markets, but are not as kind of doctrinaire as somebody who would say, yes, I'm a full red-blooded Tea Party member. Or and, and, and I don't necessarily mean to suggest that everybody who's a member of the Tea Party believes in the maximalist anti-immigration position. But in, at least in terms of this case and this race, Cantor's position was – well, Cantor's problem was that his position was kind of various. He was all over the place. But uh, – okay, I've lost my – since I was interrupted, so I'll just stop talking. Emily, one thing I'm hugely worried about is that when you take a, a scalp like Cantor's, 
it sends the signal to the Republicans that we've already gotten it pretty strongly already that any form of compromise, any vote to raise the debt ceiling, to do a budget deal with the president is a form of capitulation and therefore you can't do it. We've skirted so close to default in this country. We already had a government shutdown. We came very close to default a couple of times and only saved kind of by desperate measures by Cantor and Boehner and a very few other Republican congressmen. And now Cantor's gone and also that leadership position will be gone for compromise. You know, are we are well interrupt me in one second John, but are we at a point, John, if you want to answer this, where that kind of margin of error for something like a default is gone. No, because Kevin McCarthy's likely to get Cantor's position. He's not that much part of the right. He's, he's basically Cantor. So the problem with the idea that this is going to like take over the entire Republican leadership is that there aren't the votes for for some candidate. I mean, Jeb Henserling, who would have been the favorite of the kind of grassroots activist movement, would have been like Mike Pence or like Chadig, two previous conservative favorites who never got more than like 50 to 60 votes. And that's why Boehner's not really threatened, because there's not somebody to run against him. So the leadership of the House will still largely be where it was. One other thing I would add is, if the Republicans take control of the Senate, and there is a greater than 50 percent chance that they will, then you have a Republican Party that that controls both houses of Congress. They're going to have to govern. They're going to have to pass laws and put them on the president's desk. And you're going to have to get people to compromise even within this fractious party. And that's why that'll be a very interesting thing if they do take control and have to produce legislation. I mean, isn't one of the questions here the division between the personal interests of Republican candidates trying to get elected and the message that says to them, which I think, David, you're absolutely right. It's against deal making, against compromise. And yet the national leadership is always going to have to try to reflect the interests of the party nationally and to be thinking of the presidency one hopes for their sake. And so then there that's some kind of clash that you set up, right? Yes. This is a pretty narrow, I mean, a earthquake moment, but the fundamentals of the that you describe and of the house are basically where they were. One thing that's interesting though is that remember after the government shutdown, John Boehner basically slapped back the elites that re- say they represent the Tea Party and the grassroots movement and said basically you've been tricking the grassroots and stop it because you're just doing it to raise money. And what that did was give Republicans who are not associated with the Tea Party and who might vote for comprehensive immigration reform a little breathing room because it suggested that they weren't going to be primaried and have a bunch of money dumped into their district by the Club for Growth or the Heritage Action Fund because Boehner had slapped those groups back. What was, what's dangerous about this result is that those groups weren't involved. Brat didn't have the support of the all the groups that are now claiming that they were on his side. He was off by himself, which suggests that it was a purely grassroots uprising. And that's even more dangerous because you don't see that coming. And so if you're a, if you're a lawmaker, you're nervous, even more, more nervous than you were before. But John, that's why I don't understand how you get to this relatively optimistic or, or at least not entirely pessimistic position where whereby you say, okay, the leadership is going to be not that much more conservative. And if they have a Senate majority, they're going to have to govern. But at every single election that comes, there does seem to be this greater and greater risk. First of all, you literally have lost one person who is a known, you know, known to make compromises and replaced him. That district is now replaced by someone who isn't. So that's a, that's a small thing. But the larger thing is the message that is sent is that no one is safe if you're in a district where there are strong conservative primary voters, you have to play a certain way. And to me, that means the margin of error is 
disappearing. Well, yes and no. If you're Lindsey Graham, who's in a state where John McCain's basically his presidential chances were interred there for a long time because of his support for immigration reform, Lindsey Graham's name is on the immigration legislation. And he won by almost 60% of the vote in his primary. So it's not true that this, and, you know, Mitch McConnell won in his primary and Cornyn won in his. And you can survive in the party if you have positions that the grassroots don't like. But you have to do a lot of things and you have to do more than you used to to keep yourself alive. And there are still some facts that you can't get over, which is that they don't have the votes to replace McCarthy, and they don't have the votes to replace Boehner, they being the most kind of conservative members of the House. And if you don't have the votes and don't have a person to replace them, it just can't happen. That's why they couldn't but replace But can they Steve shape Richardson the legislation, John, by scaring the people on the margins yeah. who well, might have... That's the problem. And what you'll get into a position is they will try and scare the people on the margin, and they will scare a lot of them. But then you will have the counterpressure, which is this is imagining if the Republicans take control of both houses, the counterpressure will be, wait, you said you want to be a governing party. Your national approval rating for the party is in the teens. And now you've got control of both houses and you can't get a single piece of legislation passed because you're so bollocked up by your own internal warfare that the weight of that will be a countervailing pressure to the fears people have about primaries. And then the individual, they're going to have to work it out. Yeah, I guess I just think if you go back again to the individual versus the party incentive, that when you think of the demographic map and the redrawing of congressional lines, there's more and more incentive for the personal considerations to win out. And then so they won't win the presidency. So maybe as a whole, they'll lose the Senate, but they'll keep their safe seats. And the irony is that you end up with a the situation that David Bratz has he fears, which is this executive acting autonomously and dictatorially. Why does the executive end up acting that way? Because there's a Congress that can't act. So the Tea Party is producing the very outcome that it claims to be terrified of. Although also maybe it has to get worse before it can get better. I mean, maybe crack-ups are good because we haven't looked over the cliff yet, and that's what it's going to take to pull the country back. Heightening the contradictions. You're right, Emily. I mean, if you can do it one of two ways. You either find a charismatic figure who whips everybody into shape or the thing completely collapses. And, you know, there are political scientists who believe that basically that's the only way the rejiggering is going to happen is when there is a, and that's both the rejiggering within the Republican Party, but also to end the kind of constipation of our national governing process is to have some big crack up. All right, let's, let's end the default on the debt. Let's end that constipation now. So the GAFest is sponsored this week by the University of California. By awarding more than $1 billion in financial aid annually, the University of California makes a world-class education affordable to California's best and brightest, creating opportunity through knowledge. That's the power of public. Learn more at universityofcalifornia.edu. And now for today's breakthrough. During the first quarter of this year, the U.S. economy grew a dismal 0.1% well below predictions. Depending on which pundit you listen to, this was a sign of either a stalling economy or an ailing one. The choice of words is more important than you might think. So important, in fact, that word choice can actually affect not just how we describe the economy, but also how we try to fix it. Subtle linguistic differences and figures of speech can frame our approaches to difficult problems beyond just the economy. That's what research from the University of California, San Diego, is showing. So choose your metaphors carefully. They do more than just describe a problem. They help shape the solution. To read this story and uncover more groundbreaking innovations by the University of California, visit slate.com slash breakthroughs. I'd like to read a little passage to us. We're listening. 
As I moved on to New Hampshire and then across the country, I found my footing and my voice. My spirits were lifted and my determination hardened by the many Americans I met along the way. I dedicated my victory in the Ohio primary to everyone across America who's ever been counted out but refused to be knocked out, and for everyone who has stumbled but stood right back up, and for everyone who works hard and never gives up. The stories of the people I met reaffirmed my faith in the unbounded promise of our country, but also drove home just how much we had to do to ensure that promise was shared by all. And although the campaign was long and exhausting and cost way too much money, in the end, the process succeeded in offering voters a real choice about the future of the country. So Hillary Clinton's <laughs> memoir of her time as Secretary of State, Hard Choices, dropped this week. It is 600 absolutely dreadful pages long. The book is a grueling slog around the world, interrupted by tedious speechifying, platitudes about American greatness. It is, in short, an accurate mimetic representation of what it actually is like to be Secretary of State. John Dickerson, you've got an early copy. You were the first person to review it, probably the first person actually to have read the entire book, counting the authors, because I can't imagine they managed to get through it. Mostly, I feel sorry for you, in the sense that I managed to get through only bits of it and then like picked it up again and tried to read bits again. What did you learn from this terrible book? You know, well, first, I'm, I was... And how did you manage to read it? Uh, it was so painful. I, I had, they were sending me PDFs of the pages because it had been Xeroxed. And so I not only had, I had to read it on a screen where you, oh, it was, anyway, it was hell. I, you know. Can I just take a moment here to complain? I had to read Glenn Greenwald's book when it was embargoed. And they sent me this pile of printed out pages from a Word document. Every single one was stamped classified and half the lines were incredibly faint. I had to hold them up to the light. It was like a can, can we hear John? puzzle. Can we hear John talk about the Hillary book? Can we hear John talk about the Hillary book? So it was, it, was, uh, it was a grueling slog because I kept thinking, there's nothing here, there's nothing here, which only makes you look harder to see if there's something there and you're missing it. The book is as exactly as you describe it, David. It is safe. There is no abrasion that you can get from this book unless you hammer yourself in the head with it physically. Um, you know, that's what you would expect from somebody who is cautious and safe and careful as a politician and what you would expect if you were about to run for president. You would do nothing. This is not a book of somebody who has nothing to lose. Secretary Gates, Robert Gates, his book was the book of somebody with nothing to lose, and it's full of interesting inside and insight into the policymaking process and the way relationships make and lead to the most important decisions that affect our world. And what is so discouraging and frustrating about this book is every time it walked up to something that was interesting, that might give us some understanding and, and way to reflect on the crucial, complicated, and hard choices that are need to be made in our world, it then fled the scene, leaving only the kind of pablum and so it wasn't even informative. I'm not talking about leave out the gossip. Fine. You don't want to make, have a book that has a bunch of gossip. That's fine. But a book that gives you an accurate representation of the normal tensions and brutal back and forth that goes on in a high stakes moment. So that was what, to me, made it such a kind of waste of pages. Emily, did you learn even a single thing about Hillary Clinton from reading the book or reading what bits of the book you managed to read oh i'm allergic to bits like this i refuse to read them i i it offends me honestly that people would take up all the time and energy that goes into creating a book and a book launch and then have absolutely nothing to offer i just 
I know, I understand she's running for president. She has to play it safe. But it just leaves me with this sort of deflated sense of um, disappointment that you can get away with such an act of book homicide. Do you think that the awfulness of this book could actually hurt her? Or it will just be forgotten. It no. will only hurt the publisher who law is going to lose millions of dollars on it. Yeah, the publisher was – they were fools. And I assume she'll go and smile at a bunch of book readings. She was in Manhattan at the Union Square, Barnes & Noble. Tons of people were bringing their daughters to meet her. I mean people often buy books as artifacts as opposed to things that have words between the covers. And that this will be that kind of book, I guess. And also I think if you wanted a kind of um – you know, a level of tour through the world that you would get from sort of the State Department website, which for some people, you know, that might be just totally sufficient, the kind of Reader's Digest tour of the world. It does indeed, it's an exhaustive tour of the world and some of the interesting things going on in it. I don't think there's a lot of insight, but it, if you're just not engaged in those kinds of issues and you have an interest in her, I think that you would be a perfectly fine book. And I think the, what, the, what comes across if you read it and, and so, even just is that every person in a model United Nations in this country. Yeah, great. This is the, but I think she spent 87 days, you know, contiguous travel time added up to 87 days. She was on the road all the time and grinding through and doing the hard work of diplomacy. And so if she wants to run as a person who works very hard and is aware of the complexity of the world, and since most people basically don't want to go having adventurous wars and think the world is complicated, I think this doesn't hurt her portray herself as somebody who kind of can have the world put into her her hands as president and not go off and do anything too risky. So I did the uh, Time magazine, our former colleague Chris Wilson, in fact, did this great little political memoir title generator. Did you guys do this? I submitted. No, but I put all our names in. So mine was Solemn Leadership by David Plotz. (laughs) A Mission to Defend by Emily Bazelon and The Authority to Decide by John Dickerson. So the biggest news that has come out of this book, because there's literally no news in it, is the thing that Hillary Clinton said in an interview as part of the book launch where she was describing the period of just after leaving the White House. And she said to a TV interviewer that she and Bill Clinton were dead broke when they left the White House. A remark of colossal stupidity, right, Emily? Yeah, because most people don't define dead broke as having a nice house in whatever county of New York they live in and having lots of resources and also so much capacity to make more money, which they've absolutely unleashed upon the world to their own advantage. You know, pleading poverty when you are rich, just it it never fails to come across as completely tone deaf. How could she make such a bad misstep? She's so such a careful person that that was very uncharacteristic. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, but how you feel about how much money you have is so relative. And the Clintons do live in a world of in which they're surrounded or constantly talking to people who have incredible gobs of money. So maybe they do feel poor compared to the people around them. But I mean, she just lost total sight of her audience. Yeah. So when she left the White House, she had an $8 million book deal, had a $3 million house in Washington and $2 million house in Chappaqua. So that's that's not that's um, poverty, John. Come on. Yeah. So uh, now, what is technically true is that she did have millions of dollars in legal fees, and you know they were sort of out of a job. But I mean, she was dead broke in the way that you would be perhaps dead broke if you had the winning Powerball ticket in your pocket. I mean, you may have bills to pay, but you have the Powerball ticket, which means you're set for life. So. 
So people say the Republican committee, you know, she's out of touch. She doesn't understand what regular people are going through. I don't, that's not a problem. Hillary Clinton can solve that problem in a campaign context because, A, she has worked and advocated for policies that affect people in their daily lives and can sort of get on the right side of that issue. So that's not the problem for her. I think where this could be a symptom of or where this, in fact, itself could be a problem for her is that it she was ducking a question about her speaking fees and how much money she'd made. And so if people see this as an act of kind of truth shading or embroidery or embellishment, that's kind of what hung her up before. You remember during the 2008 Democratic primaries, there was a big period where basically the question of her trustworthiness and truthfulness was basically the center issue. There was an entire debate fought on that question. And that was a problem for her. Her numbers, uh, people thought she was honest and trustworthy. About 80% of them thought that at the beginning of the 2008 campaign. After it proceeded for a while, that number got down to 39. It seems to me the only possible purpose of this book is as a kind of stall tactic. It's like a four corners that she she is trying to keep her non-campaign going as long as possible. This is one way to keep her non-campaign going. It's a, it, she creates news. There's a cycles around her book. There's the book tour where she's not running for president. And, it, and meanwhile, it freezes all the people who want to run. So, so Emily, is, is basically that the best she can hope for out of this? Yeah, I was thinking as you, yeah, I was reading Amy Chozik's piece about her being at Barnes & Noble. Amy Chozik has been assigned to the Hillary Clinton beat. There was a whole kerfuffle over that was a wrong thing for the New York Times to do because it elevated Hillary or put her under a microscope too early. And yet there's this like excellent New York Times reporter hanging out at some stupid book signing. It just seems kind of genius as a stalling tactic. But it also makes me even feel more depleted by it. All right. So we're going to close this segment. We're going to play a little game that I played with my kid. You guys are going to have to endure it. So I'm going to read a, start to read a sentence and you guys are going to try to guess what comes next. I'm eternally grateful that I was born to loving and supportive parents in a country that offered me every possible opportunity to fulfill my dreams and rise above my circumstances. Pretty good. Every op- opportunity and what else did it offer her? Offered me every opportunity and... Resource? Blessing, Emily. Come on. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm being uh, too secular. I followed my heart to... The Yellow Brick Road. Uh, forget You guys are so much worse road. than my daughter. Forget Arkansas. It. To Arkansas, yes. And it burst with love... When my daughter Chelsea was born. Yes. Nice. It ached with a... Pain and suffering of Americans losing all their money. The losses of my father and mother. Yes. That's right. John Dickerson is born to lead. I'll leave it there. We're going to stop there. <laughs> no, do one more. Do one more? Okay. One thing that has never been a hard choice for me is serving our country. It has been the... Privilege. Uh, honor. Honor. No, it has been the... Great, yeah, it has been the greatest. It has been the greatest honor of my life. Yes, this just. Made... I started you off on that one. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that was good. Glad you didn't do any that were like about multilateral relations with our East Asian partners. You could probably. All right, Vola, Vola is signaling me. Don't do any others. I'd flip to the middle of the book. All right, whatever you do, do not read this book. It's terrible. Uh-huh. Don't buy it. Don't read it. The GapFest is brought to you this week by GoToMeeting. Not all meetings can be planned in advance. Things come up. There are last-minute opportunities, work emergencies, great ideas to discuss. But with people working from different offices or on the go, it can be impossible to get everyone in the same room when you need to meet. So be prepared. Use Citrix GoToMeeting, the powerfully simple way to meet and collaborate online whenever you need to, wherever you are. 
It's so easy. You can sign up for GoToMeeting from your computer or mobile device and launch your first meeting in seconds. You can share your screen to collaborate on documents, spreadsheets, and projects in real time, making it easy for everyone to stay on the same page. And turn on your webcam to see each other face-to-face. It's like meeting in person. GoToMeeting can save you time and money, making you more productive. Start working smarter today by signing up for your free 30-day trial of GoToMeeting. Visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free button, and use the promo code GABFEST. That's GoToMeeting.com, promo code GABFEST. A superior court judge in Los Angeles ruled this week that teacher tenure provisions in California are unconstitutional because they deprive students, particularly poor and minority students, of a decent public education. Tenure, said the judge, keeps unqualified abusive teachers in the classroom, which reduces educational performance and lifetime earnings for the children who are taught by them. The case was brought and backed by Silicon Valley money, but it's part of a kind of larger ed reform movement that's been supported by the president and his secretary of education, Arne Duncan. So, Emily, what is the legal foundation for the ruling? The legal foundation is that California, like every state in the country, has a right to education in its constitution. And in California, there's been a fair amount of cases built over the years about how this is a fundamental right, and it means that students have should have access to equal education. So the main thing this judge is arguing is that teacher tenure operates in a way that is especially disadvantaging for poor and minority students because the worst teachers tend to work in schools with large populations of poor students. And so this is very much an attack on the particular model of teacher tenure in California, which I have to say is completely preposterous the way they've constructed it. But it's framed as a matter of equality and really as like a civil rights issue. Were you persuaded by the legal reasoning? Well, I'm sort of torn. I find the teacher tenure system in California to be crazy and awful. So my biggest problem with it is that they were tenuring teachers part of in the spring of their second year, which means really you only have about a year and a half of data to go by. That's before most states. The average time for teacher tenure in the states is three years. I would argue it should be even longer. And it there just is good research that you don't know after a year and change whether you have a good or a terrible teacher on your hands. And the other thing is California in its statute has last in first out, which means that seniority dictates everything about who gets to be hired and fired, or I guess especially fired. And that also, I think, is totally crazy to me. And there's an amazing statistic in the opinion that it can cost between $50,000 and $450,000 to get rid of a bad teacher. So all of that just seems like terrible, sclerotic policy for schools. And yet the notion that it is up to a judge to dismantle all of this in the name of making schools better seems suspect to me. Our colleague, our sometimes colleague Dana Goldstein wrote a great piece for The Atlantic in which she pointed out that when you look at why schools with lots of poor kids are so bad, it is true that there are a disproportionate number of poor teachers at these schools, but it's also true that it's really hard to hire good teachers and that principals have trouble hiring. The teachers offered big incentives to work in these schools. Even teachers from urban districts often choose not to. The questions about what's wrong with these schools are much harder than just getting rid of teacher tenure. And so I'm really, I'm not sure it's up to a judge to take this kind of step. Two questions, Emily. One is, um, do you feel that way more broadly about judges basically 
judges shouldn't be doing this, whether it's about education or other kinds of public policy. Yeah, it's classic activist judging in that sense, where you're sort of taking this abstract concept of equality and then applying it in this broad way. I'd be really surprised if this ruling survives the California Supreme Court. But And then the other question is, can't the judge say this is crazy and you go fix it? I mean, in other words, isn't that limiting what the judge is Judges just trying to give lawmakers more flex or school boards more or school districts more flexibility, right? Not just not telling them what they should do. Right. Well, this judge stayed his own ruling, so there's no practical effect. But he was essentially striking down the statute in California that sets the terms for teacher tenure. And that would invite the legislature to come up with a new and better statute. And maybe they should. I'm just again, it just seems like. A way of channeling a lot of frustration about education in this direction against bad teachers. And I completely agree that it's too hard to fire bad teachers. And I've watched family members who work in schools have an enormous um, amount of trouble with that. So it's very real to me. But I just don't think that as bad as they can be, the challenges are bigger. And what we really need to be doing is improving the quality of teaching across the board because most teachers are fair to good and they're there because they want things for to be better for students. And the problem is their jobs are incredibly low status, not particularly well paid and not constructed in a way that leads to a lot of quality professional development. Right. As I've thought about this issue, it seems to me that the the Steve Brill story that ran in The New Yorker maybe five years ago now about the, the rubber room, room story. Rubber which, room, sorry. which is yes. about the place that New York City teachers who are incompetent but not yet fired are sent to spend their days getting paid while their case works its way through the, the system that adjudicates these teacher firings and takes years and years and many of these teachers never get fired at all and they're paid for years. That that story is maybe one of the most influential public policy stories of our time because it has it has reshifted the debate to this question of getting rid of teachers when Emily as you say the real issue is not getting rid of bad teachers although it would be nice to be able to get rid of bad teachers it's and make it easier to get rid of bad teachers the real issue has to do with bringing better teachers in this is like like classic child rearing like and I should know because I make this mistake all the time but like focusing on the negative thing that your child is doing and and attacking that rather than encouraging the, all the the positive things they're doing. And that and this attack on teachers has just it has made a teaching a lower status profession in this country, made it harder to get good people into it. And that is gonna be disastrous for us in the long run. When we what we should have been doing is just is elevating this profession. Well Right. I think that's right. John does not think that. No no John is no, a I teacher think it, attacker. But I think it's I think it's because they're not attacking teachers. They're attacking bad teachers. But what the problem with attacking bad teachers is that it's, it's, it's a distraction from a reform that may be so much more effective, which is hiring good teachers, which is, I, I think, mean, slightly different things- than saying that this is an attack on teachers. Well, Both of these things have to happen, right? And most states do not have teacher tenure laws that are rigid and crazy like California's. I think something like two-thirds of the states or some high number have gotten rid of their teacher tenure laws in the last few years. I don't think so. No, I don't think that's right, Emily. Yeah, no, this only affects like 12 states. Well, maybe it only affects – I thought only three states had no teacher tenure laws at all. But I think the the ones that – between the the 12 that this would actually maybe allow to change their rulings and the three that have none at all, I think there are lots of other like gradations where it's not as hard. It doesn't cost $40,000 to fire a teacher. John, I – your point about it, this is not about attacking teachers, it's about attacking bad teachers. It's kind of true and kind of not. If you look at what happened in in a state like Wisconsin with Scott Walker going after the public employee unions and teacher unions being incorporated in that, I believe, right? 
there is this sense that teacher unions as a whole are this force for evil and that tenure as a whole is a force for evil. What, what's the force for evil is that there are bad teachers who rot minds. But teachers' unions, every great school system across the world has teachers' unions. Every great school system across the world, I believe, has tenure. You know, every great school system across the world has protections for teachers being fired. That has nothing, has basically nothing to do with the quality of the teachers. What has to do with the quality of the teachers is, is this profession honored? Are the working conditions good? Are you, you know, are you given decent compensation? Are you given high status in your society? And when we attack teachers union, it pushes down status. Right. But isn't something that teachers unions support, just because something the teachers union supports gets knocked down in court, doesn't necessarily mean it's an attack on teachers. In other words, the president has, and the Department of Education, they're not huge fans of the teachers' unions, but they want them to stick around. Yet they were applauding this ruling. So I don't think, I think you can still think teachers' unions are useful and good, but that this is a bad policy that they support. It's definitely a bad policy. Emily, as she laid it out, it's the California tenure rules seem terrible. But the emphasis that's been made on going after teacher privilege and teacher right. organizations, I feel, is misguided. It's yeah, not, I think that's, uh, that's that not makes the sense. right approach. Can I pedantically go back to my point earlier, which is to say that you're right, tenure remains common, but since 2009, two-thirds of American states have weakened their teacher tenure laws in response to race to the top from the Obama administration. So there is this broader recognition that you can write these laws in a bad way. And when the unions are being smart, they recognize that and they allow for more flexibility of firing. It's just that then they also ask for these other things we're talking about that support the development of the profession in a positive direction. So, Emily, last word on this. You, you don't think this has any legal life left in it. You think the California Supreme Court will strike it down. But do you think as a political or, or theme in the culture, is tenure going to go away? I think tenure is going to weaken. And I think putting it off, postponing it, you know, three or four years down the road in a teacher's career is a really good idea. There's a trade-off here, though, which is that job security is one thing teachers trade for having higher salaries. And so if we're going to make their jobs less attractive by making them easier to fire, then we're probably going to have to pay them more, which, you know, there's been this whole push for merit pay. But one of the things Dana writes about in her new book is that there's just no evidence that that really pans out into better teaching or even the teachers exactly want to be um, incentivized in that way. So, you know, this is the problem that we're talking about, really. It's that this whole profession, which is maybe the most important job in our children's lives, is incredibly undervalued. I mean, I, I you know, if my kids wanted to become teachers, I have to say that as much as I honor the profession – I would be worried about them and what their futures were going to be like. Wow. That is quite don't a Don't you feel say. that way? No. I actually, yeah, no, I don't either. But because I, I, I honor your they feeling. They would do it because they loved it and found meaning in it, which is should be the first principle anyway. And so if they've got that, I would be pretty psyched for them. Yeah, but their likelihood of feeling beaten down and underappreciated and underpaid is going to be really high. Well, that's true. I mean, that's not good. So, it's not so, you, fair. so you're going to be like, like oh, change. go be a corporate lawyer, honey? <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> and get paid 10x like, what you make as a teacher, but oh, the job satisfaction. 
No, but I do think that there is we have to reckon with the reality of what this profession can involve right now. And especially when we're talking about, you know, under-resourced schools with lots of poor kids in them. Those are really hard places to work. And we should be clear-eyed about that and think about how to make them better places to work and how to really make it – how to reward the people who are stalwart and and go there. Indeed. All right. We have another sponsor this week, which is Harry's, which – Harry's is bringing a very personal shaving experience right to your door. So I am a customer of Harry's. It is a wonderful service. So going and buying razors is a huge hassle. Razors are incredibly expensive. They're hard to buy. You're always, they're always changing the handle so your blade doesn't fit on the handle. Harry's sends blades and razor handles right to your door, also shaving cream. The blades cost half the price of a standard you know, big market competitor. They're lovely blades. The handle is awesome. Mine is orange. It's like Dutch orange. It's the color of the, the Dutch uh, World Cup team. It's great, and it's, and it's super convenient. It feels good. It's cheaper. I have nothing but good things to say. You should try it. You can go to harrys.com and use our promo code POLITICAL to get $5 off your first purchase. I'm using it to trim my beard. I will use it this afternoon to trim my beard after the show. Let's go to Cocktail Chatter. When you, John Dickerson, are out boozing in the bars of Des Moines or wherever you are, Iowa City, what are you going to be chattering to the politerati of Iowa about? I wish I could get down to Iowa City, or over, I should say, east to Iowa City. I will be chattering about a huge new um, piece of research put out by the Pew Center for the People in the Press of um, 10,000 Americans. And it tells us something we already know, but in very dark and exquisite detail terms, which is that we are the people who participate in the political process are more polarized than ever. And there are three findings that I think are interesting. One, or I shouldn't say more polarized than ever, more polarized than they've ever been in the two decades they've been doing this poll. Today, 92% of Republicans are to the right of the of a median Democrat and 94% of Democrats are to the left of the median Republican. So that is as extreme as those numbers have ever been. The share of people in the very conservative and very liberals, the share of people who have a very, very negative view of the opposing party has doubled. So that now 27% of Democrats think that the Republican Party is not just bad, but that they are a threat to the nation's well-being. 36% of Republicans see the Democratic Party as a threat to the nation's well-being. So we're in our corners and we're madder about it. And then I think finally, the, what's interesting to me in terms of the Democratic primaries, that's been a little bit of a difference, and I'm not sure how real this difference is, but it's worth watching and one to watch, which is that the share of conservatives in the Republican Party, the share of conservatives has always been larger than the share of liberals in the Democratic Party. But now basically the same number, around 30 some odd percent of Republicans identify themselves as very conservative, and about the same number in this Pew poll identify themselves as liberal. That's way up for liberals. That didn't used to, it didn't used to be so high for um, people identifying themselves as consistently liberal. In fact, I think back in 1994, only 3% of, of Democrats identified themselves as consistently liberal on this scale of 10 things that they test. So is that, is that a, just a label thing? Have people just changed the way they, they talk about each other? There was a long period where being called liberal was something Democrats shied away from. 
but also it could be just that people call themselves liberal, but what does that really mean in practice? And will it, you know, would it represent a uh, an opportunity for somebody to run against Hillary Clinton uh, the way people run against mainstream Republicans from the right? Could somebody run against her for the left? If there were 30-some-odd percent of the Democratic base that, or if the liberal part of the Democratic Party was 30-some-odd points, that wouldn't be a bad base from which to run. So anyway, that's what interested me this week. Or is someone like Hillary Clinton actually represented enough of the kind of liberal, centrist, pragmatic part of the Democratic Party? Yeah, I think the actual answer is probably that there are enough people who say they're consistently liberal who like Hillary Clinton that a opponent from the left wouldn't wouldn't uh, have enough votes to go. Right. It's interesting, too. Maybe the word has been rehabilitated since the days of Mike Dukakis. Like a whole generation has passed since he basically wrecked that word. Emily, what do you want to chat about? I had a really moving reporting experience this week. I sat down to talk with a group of people who've lost children and other loved ones to gun violence. And they've all become activists in the world of gun violence prevention. And I just wanted to ask them, this was actually your idea, David, but we wanted to talk to them about what it's like to do this work, even in the face of all this recurring violence. And they were incredibly honest and emotional and thoughtful about what they do and how to essentially harness their emotion and their experiences. It was really a privilege to talk with them. And I published a piece on Slate this week that people can check it out. It just went up, right? I, I haven't read yeah, it yet. Yeah, just went I just up. saw it on the site. I have two quick chatters. The first is some family log rolling. My brother, John Plotz, who is a professor and a just, I mean, he's a wonderful man in all fashions all respects. But he's written a great new book for children. It's called Time in the Tapestry. And it's about William Morris, who if you don't know William Morris, William Morris is, without William Morris, there is no Brooklyn. Without William Morris, design and artisanal culture as we know it does not exist. He was a 19th century British radical designer, artist, maker of beautiful things that were useful. John has written a children's book about two kids and a, and a blackbird and their journey to find William Morris. And it's called Time in the Tapestry. It comes out this week. Please check it out at your neighborhood bookstore. The second quick chatter is I went to something this weekend, which was so delightful. And I think every city should have it. It was called Truck Touch Ballet. It took place in the parking lot of our RFK Stadium here in Washington, put on by the Department of Public Works, which funded an artist, a woman named Holly Bass, who was an old colleague of mine from many years ago. She created a dance for public works officials, public works employees, and their vehicles. It began with uh, some of the parking ticket guys who ride segways coming out and doing synchronized dancing on their segways. And then meter maids came out and did, and it's all done to pop music and hip hop. Some meter maids came out and did a hip hop dance and they ticketed a car that was parked there. And then a tow truck driver came out while dancing, removed, you know, took the car away. And then the garbage guys came out and the street sweepers came and did kind of like a Zamboni, a beautiful Zamboni dance with their street sweepers to pick up garbage. And then these tall cranes came out and lifted guys up in the air and the cranes did kind of a snake dance with their long necks. It was the most glorious celebration of work of pride and work and for people who who do jobs that you know no one likes a meter maid no one no one thinks too much about the garbage man but these people were celebrating their work with art in front of a huge crowd it was so great and that's awesome it, you should get it to your city truck touch ballet is based on something called i think trash dance that was done somewhere else for which there's a documentary yeah that was awesome You'll find links to what we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash GabFest. Please follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest. 
Also on Facebook, facebook.com slash GabFest. There's all kinds of fun conversations on that page. If you want to email us, please do so at GabFest at Slate.com. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or another podcast app that you love. Stitcher is popular. There are Android apps people really like. I don't know them because I don't use Android, but there are such things, and you should use one. In iTunes, you can search for Slate Political GabFest in the iTunes store. You leave a comment and a rating while you're there. That really helps us, the comments and ratings tell iTunes that, hey, this is a podcast people should be listening to. Also, if you are not listening to Mike Pesca's fantastic new podcast, The Gist, our daily podcast on Slate, wow, you are missing out. You are missing out. It is so good. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our intern is Max Tanney. Executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll be with you next week. Thanks for listening. Oh, thanks for listening. That's a new one from you, Emily. Thank you. (laughs) Well, you usually say it. It felt like it was missing. Okay. Okay.